here we have in Revelation chapter 15 God's people singing a victory song of praise John tells us that he sees here that God is about to give people their final warning their last chance to turn to him and the wrath of God has been shown in several ways across human history But at chapter 15, we are about to see the last set of visions that John saw where seven angels pour out the seven plagues on mankind. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Or, as chapter 16 tells us more explicitly, the angels were told to pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath so chapter 16 is where John describes these bowls being poured out but note in chapter 16 verse 2 that these bowls are being poured out on those who are unbelievers those who have the mark of the beast the mark of the beast is a very controversial thing there's a lot of ideas as to what it might be but it can be seen very simply the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 verse 16 is a symbolic way of describing those who just a couple of verses later in Revelation 14 verse 1 do not have the mark of God written on their foreheads Everyone belongs to either the world or to Christ. Those who belong to Christ have the mark of God. And those who belong to the world have the mark of the beast. In the ancient world, a mark identified ownership or identity. And we aren't told what the mark of the beast is, just that it identifies people with the beast who rules this world. The beast is how John saw the devil's work through worldly power, through unscrupulous political leaders, through tyrants, even sometimes through democratically elected leaders who nevertheless are just continuing the devil's work. The devil introduced sin into the world through Adam, our spiritual forefather, and people don't realize that when they're just living normally, that they're actually continuing that pattern of sin that they have inherited. People just think that they're often following their own desires or that they're suffering at the hands of other people. But what they don't see is that behind all of that, there's a sinister mastermind who just wants to kill and destroy. Jesus summarized the devil's work in contrast to his own when he compared his followers to a flock of sheep and the devil to the thief who wants to come in to kill and destroy. Contrast, Jesus is the good shepherd who protects and even lays down his life for the sheep. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life, Jesus tells us in John 10, verse 10. (coughs) Billy Joel sang the song, 
we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. And that's just an indication of the fact that we're all in this together in a sense. We're all suffering what had been started ages ago and we're all following that path where the devil introduced sin into this world. If it were not for God's grace and limiting sin, the world would be a far worse place. This is a wonderful place. Leo Armstrong can sing, what a wonderful world. But yet it's a wonderful world only because of God's restraining hand on sin. Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? If God was to to let sin off its lead, the world would be a far worse place. But praise God for his restraining grace. The Lord has restrained sin far more than we realize. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Yet... As Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In many varied and different ways, people are suppressing the truth of God, not giving him honor and worship, not acknowledging the truth, living in various different ways, lives which are not centered on him, not loving him with all their heart, mind, soul and strength, not loving their neighbor as themselves. We're not living in paradise, we're living in a fallen world where the wrath of God is being revealed. But yet that isn't the full picture. Into this fallen world, God has been merciful and gracious He has brought redemption and salvation. And that comes simply by placing our faith in Christ. As John has told us, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is the one who reconciles God is the one who provides a way for us to come back to him. God is the one who loved us, who made the first move. God is the one who forgives. So, human history is not just a story of us living in a fallen world. Human history is also the story of those who've been reconciled to God, living a different narrative, a different history, as they are going to a different eternal destiny. We're all familiar with people giving their testimony or story in church, their their experiences. We're familiar with communities having different narratives of how history has affected them. Different nations focus on their own histories. 
But when we look at the whole world, what we see is that there are essentially two different strands of history. Everything falls under the history of mankind naturally or the history of God's people. It's as if there are two cords, two strands that are woven together. According to Revelation, at, the heart, at heart there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who belong to God and have his mark on their forehead or those who belong to the beast and have his mark. The mark is metaphorical. It just seems, it just means that it's an identity marker that identifies them as not belonging to God, but belonging to the fallenness of this world. Have you ever seen a diagram of DNA, the the the, the proteins that make up the the building blocks in our cells? Well. Imagine the DNA molecules, which are often described as two interwoven strands, a helix. You've got a blue strand and a red strand, as in this illustration. The blue strand can be compared to human history outside of Christ, which goes along its path towards judgment and eternal condemnation on the judgment day. And yet... That's not the only strand of history because alongside it there's another strand where God's people are living a different history. One where they are under the the protection and the love and care of God and their final outcome will be a very different history. One where there is no pain or suffering or sorrow any longer. Where God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just as in the illustration, you can see little lines going between the blue to the red. Well, so too, there's a flow of people going from being outside of Christ to being in Christ as they place their faith in Christ. Down through history, there's a steady flow of people uh, switching over from being under the realm of darkness to the realm of light. The blue strand, humanity outside of Christ, is under the wrath of God. But the red strand, humanity in Christ, is now even under no condemnation. As we read in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 1 is a good illustration of that, those two strands, where there is blessing upon those who do not follow the path of the ungodly compared to the the final judgment of the ungodly. The Bible itself is the history of these two strands woven through the narrative of history. We rub shoulders with people each day from different backgrounds, different cultures, different nationalities, different personality types, different abilities, different experiences. But at heart, there's only two groups of people, two histories, two paths. And we encourage people, we witness that there is another path and we encourage them through the gospel 
to make that move, to switch paths, to switch lanes. Although John starts to see the last set of visions of seven bowls of God's wrath poured out at the start of Revelation chapter 15, which complete his set of visions, which end the description of God's wrath before the judgment day, we get a little break in the program. He's been describing almost the, the blue path, the blue narrative of God's wrath on those who are not his people for some chapters. But just like when you're watching a program on TV and all of a sudden you're, it's really getting good and you just want to keep on watching, the ads come in and you're switched over to something different. Or you're watching a program and somebody grabs a remote and all of a sudden you're watching a different channel. Well, in Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 to 4, we're switching channels for a few moments. There's a, a bit of an interruption of the seven angels pouring out the seven bowls. And instead we see the story of how those who are in Christ are worshipping the Lord, are victorious. We get a little glimpse of a different view of history. In verses 2 to 3, John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So as John is about to to describe the seven bowls that are being poured out, these seven plagues, he then has a, an interlude. He, he breaks into this vision of God's people, those who don't have the, the, the number and the name of the, the beast, those who instead are identified as God's people having his name and his number. And they're standing beside a sea, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the Lamb. How are we to understand this? Well, there's a lot of people look at Revelation and just let their imagination run wild and can come up with all kinds of different things. But as we find, the the best way to interpret Revelation is to to understand that the picture language is by and large echoes of the Old Testament. If we know our Old Testament, we will be able to understand what is shown here in Revelation. Most often, there are three sections of of the Old Testament that are referred to: Daniel's visions and. Daniel chapters 7 to 12, Ezekiel's visions, but also the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, the exodus under Moses' leadership. Here, the dominant symbolism is from exodus, 
in Revelation 16, the seven bowls which are following this are very closely paralleled with the plagues that Pharaoh and the Egyptians suffered as Moses was about to take the people through to the promised land, through out of Egypt on their journey to the promised land. And even in Revelation 15, verse 3, here we have Moses mentioned by name. Not only that, but the song of Moses is mentioned. That song was his victory song of praise in Exodus 15, where having been chased by Pharaoh and his army, God gives them deliverance through the Red Sea. And they stand on the other shore while Pharaoh and his army, the water comes in on them. They are judged, but God's people are delivered. And so they sing their song of victory. Moses led the people in worship and his sister Miriam with her tambourine led the other woman in praise as well. They stood on dry ground while their evil enemy was drowned in the sea. So here the people of of God sing the song of Moses in Revelation 15. Beside the sea, as some translations have it, like the ESV, or on the sea, it's hard to interpret what the right translation should be. The New Living Translation is on the sea, but I think beside is is slightly better, fits the imagery a bit better. What can we say about this sea? The sea of glass mixed with fire. It seems to be the same sea of glass that is mentioned in Revelation 4 verse 6, where the Lord is on his throne, but before the throne there was as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. There are various suggestions as to what that sea is in Revelation 4, but it seems that that is what's been referred to here in Revelation 15. One commentator, Morris, quoting another, Kittle, seems to have the right idea when he's quoting Kittle, who says, a symbol that the sea of glass is a symbol conveying God's ineffable, absolute holiness. Holiness is in its original sense of separateness. None of us can approach God as we are. A shining ocean barred all approach. And John is emphasizing the majesty and the holiness of God. So before the throne of God, there is this sea of glass which separates the throne from everyone else. If that's the right idea, then those who have conquered have crossed that sea by the blood of the Lamb and they have They are now with God, no longer separated from him. We know from Hebrews that the Holy of Holies was a place that only the high priest could go into once a year. The ordinary priests couldn't and certainly the people couldn't. But when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, the curtain in the temple was torn in two into the Holy of Holies. And we have access to the Father now through that new and living way, through the blood of Jesus. We have crossed that sea by faith in Christ. Regardless of what the sea means, what we can see is that it is mixed with fire. And in the Bible, fire is a symbol of judgment. 
On judgment day, wheat will be gathered into a barn, but the chaff will be burned with fire. And it seems that this sea is presented here as a sea of judgment. Just as Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the Red Sea as a judgment of God against them, here we see another Red Sea, a fiery Red Sea, where God's people are conquerors over the beast and its image and the number of its name. We've seen in chapters 4 to 5 that God's people have conquered by the blood of the Lamb who was sacrificed for sin. That's the Lord Jesus, the Redeemer. And we've seen repeated descriptions of God's wrath on the world described through the seven seals, including the four horsemen or riders of the apocalypse, through to the seven judgments, And after the seven signs, we see another set of judgments about to be unleashed. The seven bowls in chapter 16. So throughout these chapters, we have the blue strand of human history, which is under the judgment of God. But we see interspersed, we see the the red history of God's people. From the cry, how long, O Lord, to who is worthy But now they're singing their victory song. Victory over the enemy, the devil. John here is describing in picture language what Paul describes in Romans chapter 8. Let's let's look at Romans chapter 8 to get an idea of what is being described here in Revelation chapter 15. Paul asks what shall we say about such wonderful things as these Paul has just across eight chapters described the whole plan of salvation if God is for us who can ever be against us since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all won't he also give us everything else who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own no one For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honour, God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute? or in danger, or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul describes the salvation that is there through faith in Christ. Not only in reconciling us to God, not only as giving us a hope, but giving us victory 
that God has conquered sin. God has conquered history. God has conquered all the plans of the evil one. Nothing can separate us from his love. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Persecution or death, from a worldly point of view, might be defeat. But as the early church was encouraged through revelation and in their experience under the persecution that was there at Rome, sometimes sporadic, sometimes focused, sometimes awful. Death was not defeat. When they were faithful to Christ, even to the point of death, that was victory. Persecution, even to the point of death, can be a victory over sin, a victory if we are faithful to the end. That is a victory over losing our faith, over being unfaithful. We have victory in Christ. He has overcome the world. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has risen from the dead. He has atoned for sin on the cross. But also there's the battle within ourselves where, as Paul described in Romans chapter 7, we want to do good, but we find ourselves not doing it. Instead, we're doing the sin that we don't want to do. While everything that unbelievers do is tainted with sin to some degree, yet in Christ we are able to to be free from that. We are no longer under the control and power and dominion of sin. We've been set free from that. And we can walk in the Spirit. We can walk in victory. We can walk in holiness. We can produce the fruit of the Spirit. We can show that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We can love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and our neighbour as ourselves, as we ought to when we are walking in the Spirit because of the, the conquering victory that Christ has given us. We see that in our own lives. We see that in the world. Victory. Paul describes in Romans 7 verse 4 so my dear brothers and sisters this is the point this is what he's going to describe over the rest of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8 you died to the power of the law when you died with Christ and now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead and as a result we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God we have victory over sin in our own lives And Christ has victory over sin in history. It's no wonder that the believers here are singing the the song of of praise, which resembles Moses' song of victory. Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord? and glorify your name for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous deeds have been revealed and all nations are coming and worshipping before him people from all tribes all nations all languages all cultures and subcultures are coming to faith in Christ 
He is sharing his victory with us. He is offering it to us. In the gospel, we are invited, we are persuaded almost to turn from being under the path of wrath to being under the path of blessing. God wants people to repent, to turn back to him. In his mercy, he gives us a foretaste. He gives us warnings. And a Revelation 16 is like a final written warning. Will people repent? Will people turn to him? Well, sadly, the pattern in Revelation 16 is that many people don't. But at the same time, we see that many people are. What about us? Are we standing at the edge of that sea of glass, looking back? Are we looking at the victory that Christ has had over sin, over death, over the enemy? Are we looking at the victory that we have experienced in our own lives when we have been able to say no to sin and walk in the ways Christ wants us to as his followers? John writes this letter to a church that is struggling. Persecution has started and it's, it's, it's going to get worse. And they're struggling. Those who haven't given in to the, the worship of the emperor, the image of the emperor in the local temple, are not able to, to buy and sell. They're excluded from being able to, to do business in the marketplace as usual. They're suffering, they're persecuted. But at the same time, what John is showing is that they have victory over sin by not giving in, by not compromising with the world and just doing what it takes to to get what they want. Let's just worship the image of the emperor and let's not make a big deal of it. Let's just go along with the ways of the world. That was their temptation. But John is showing them that that path, worshipping the image of the beast, that path leads to destruction. But if they are faithful, even if it's to the point of death, this other path leads to glory. He shows them in Revelation 15, these few verses here, that in Christ they have victory. John is showing the two narratives And he's showing the outcome that they are part of the people. Just like Moses and the people sang a song of victory over defeat of Pharaoh and his army. If we're faithful to Christ, if we are Christ's, we are part of that people who will sing that song. We already have victory over sin, over death, over the enemy, in him. If we've trusted in him, let's keep persevering. Let's keep our minds focused on Christ, on his victory, not just seeing what the world communicates to us, not giving in to the compromises and temptations that we might face. If you haven't trusted in Christ yet, or if you're unsure or if you think you have but you don't have that peace 
in your heart that assurance that you know that you know then simply place your faith in Christ trust him turn your back on sin turn your back on the the enemy turn your back on all things that are ungodly and from the bottom of your heart trust in Christ who died on the cross that our sins would be forgiven he paid the price we don't need to pay it anymore and trust that he rose again from the dead and that we will have that new life in our hearts rising again from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit simply by faith, simply by trusting and trust your life to him and he will bring you out on the victorious side if you're walking with him already give him praise and thanks we have victory and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus trust in him and praise him let's pray Lord we thank you that you have gained victory over sin over death Lord you are victorious you sit enthroned on high and Lord at the moment your enemies are being made your footstool Lord we know the end of the story we know the big picture victory is yours and Lord we shall overcome also as your people Lord help us to be faithful to you help us to persevere help us to to sing your praises Lord help us to look past the difficulties we face day to day and help us Lord to look forward to that day when when you will return when you will be seen to be victorious and we will be seen to be your people on that day Lord help us to persevere encourage and strengthen each one Lord bring more people into your kingdom may more people take that journey from that path of human history that leads to to eternal judgment Lord over to that path that leads to eternal life We thank you for your love and your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.